Well, good morning again. This morning we come to Matthew chapter 19. We've been working through Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, for uh, a number of weeks. Uh, we come to the first 12 verses of chapter 19 this morning. Uh, and let me point out now that in your bulletin, on the back of your bulletin, is an outline uh, for the sermon. Um, you can see it there. You can use that air space to take notes uh, if you like. Before we read Matthew 19, 1 through 12, let's pray together. Our Father, we, we come to you. We come to hear from you. We come to hear your word. We come to be taught of you. We pray, Father, that you would open our hearts and minds by your spirit, that you would soften us, that we would receive your word. We pray that you would work in us by your spirit, that we would receive it and believe it and live more fully in faith in light of it, that we would serve you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength better this week because of what we hear from your word this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 19, beginning with verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then didn't Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Well, the Bible is a love story. It begins with God lovingly creating his bride. It continues with her rebellion. It climaxes with God's faithfulness to redeem and to cleanse his bride. And it ends with a wedding. See, the Bible begins with God out of love creating the world, carefully crafting his creation to make it a fit environment for his creatures, a welcoming habitat for his people. He then creates his people, man and woman, complementing one another, helpers to one another, suitable for one another, to work side by side with one another. And he does this to reflect his relationship to his people. The Bible says that God is our helper. 
and that we are his fellow workers being made in his image of course in some profound and amazing way we were created to be suitable for God but the story quickly takes a turn for the worse the bride rather than delighting in and loving her bridegroom she turns away from him she turns to establish herself as her own independent person so to speak she ignores his wise counsel she breaks his law she loves herself her will her plans she tries to take his place and the rest of the Old Testament in part is a story of the unfaithful bride that language doesn't explicitly come in until Israel of course God takes Israel out from among the nations to be his bride the Bible tells us he brings her to himself to his tent the tabernacle in the wilderness but we are told again and again that she turns to other lovers. She, Israel turns to false gods and worships them. Israel turns to the nations to care for and protect her. Israel turns to her own whim to satisfy her. Israel does not love the Lord her God with all her heart, all her soul, all her mind, and all her strength. She loves the protection of stronger nations. She loves the luxuries of wealthier nations. She loves sexual immorality. Her leaders love power. Her prophets love applause. Her priests love profit. So God divorces his wife. He sends her away. He sends Israel to Assyria. And God says in Jeremiah chapter 3, he says uh, that Judah saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. So he sends Judah away as well. He sends Judah away to Babylon. God spurns his bride. Why? Why would he do that? Well, God sends Israel away physically so that she might return with her whole self emotionally, relationally, spiritually, return back to her God. Uh, God cries out later in Jeremiah 3. He says, Return, O faithless Israel. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt, that you have rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree, and that you have not obeyed my voice. Return, O faithless children. In Isaiah 62, God says, For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see her righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no, no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. See, God promises to Israel that he will once again marry his people. He will take his people back. In Hosea, God says to Hosea, 
Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins, that is, the offerings of idols. See, the Old Testament is in part a story of the unfaithful bride, but it is also the story of the faithful husband who pursues that bride no matter what. Even when in righteous anger God sends her away, He does so only to bring her back, only to discipline her and soften her heart that she might return. In fact, in in Deuteronomy, just the fifth book of the Bible, God prophesies all of this beforehand, and He says, when all of these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your hearts and with all your souls. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. For the Lord will again delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers when you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and the statutes that are written in the book of the law when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. See, God disciplines Israel for a time, disciplines us for our good. He sends Israel away only so that she might come back with all of her heart. But what is God to do with all of Israel's unfaithfulness. She has rebelled. She has been unfaithful. And the penalty for both idolatry and adultery in the Old Testament was death. So the bridegroom himself comes. He comes to accept the debt of his bride. Jesus comes to bear the penalty for our unfaithfulness, our lack of love, our spiritual harlotry. Our chasing after the world when God would, have a, would give us himself. And Jesus comes to pay the debt of his bride. That's what happens when you get married, of course. You accept the debts of your spouse. Jesus comes to take our debts, to pay them in the cross that we might ultimately marry him debt-free. And he comes to cleanse us by his spirit that we might marry him as a bride without spot or wrinkle in beautiful clothes of righteousness prepared by our bridegroom. Do you know the time in which we live right now? Jesus is preparing his bride. He is gathering us around the good news of his death and resurrection for our sin. He is cleansing us by his spirit, making us a fit bride for himself. So much so that that Revelation says that that in the future, at Christ's return, the multitudes will rejoice and say the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. See, Jesus will one day behold the bride, His church, that He has cleansed by His blood, His Word, and His Spirit. And then we will be perfectly joined forever. The consummation will come. The wedding feast will be here. The story of history ends with a wedding. And weddings, of course, 
are really just beginnings of something new and wonderful. The Bible is a love story. It's a love story of God's faithfulness in the face of our unfaithfulness. A love story that ends with a wedding feast. Now that's all by way of introduction. (laughs) But it's necessary. It's necessary in order to understand marriage and divorce. Because our human relationships are really meant to be a picture of something more, something bigger. There are three more points on the outline. You can see them in your bulletin. The the first we've already talked about. That was the divine love story. Uh, Next is is radical fidelity, human hard-heartedness, and purposeful singleness. First, radical fidelity. Really, we're, we're in the book of Matthew. We're in Matthew chapter 19. And uh, some religious leaders of Jesus' day came to him trying to stir up trouble. And what we see really through the rest of the book of Matthew is these, these clash, this clash of competing authorities, the religious leaders clashing with Jesus. And we've seen that Jesus came to set up a kingdom. We've seen that this kingdom is, is not like the kingdoms of the world. It doesn't operate based on, on power and trying to get up on top, but it is based on service and love. And this kingdom comes into radical conflict then with those in the world who try to maintain power through self-supporting and self-justifying systems of religion or politics or what have you. And so the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they they launch into this sort of full-scale attack on Jesus. They're trying to trip him up. They're trying to trap him in his words. And so they pick one of the most controversial issues in Jesus' day and they ask his opinion. See, they want to... They want to alienate Jesus from the crowds. They're hoping that whatever he says, it will kind of lower his ratings in the polls, so to speak. And so they ask Jesus, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? See, in Jesus' day, there was a debate on what was a just cause for divorce. Some said the only appropriate cause was adultery. Others, on the complete other end of the spectrum, said that a man could basically divorce his wife for any reason. If she burnt his breakfast, he could divorce his wife. If he found someone prettier, he could divorce his wife. And and no joke, right, these are some of the things that the religious leaders of Jesus' day discussed. And the Pharisees want Jesus to weigh in. They're knowing, of course, that he's bound to upset somebody by whatever he answers. And Jesus' answer is really profoundly simple. He points to the Bible. He says, God created them male and female. And then Jesus says in verse 5, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus says very simply, when two people are married, God joins them together. And if God has joined them together, we have no business tearing them apart. And Jesus' answer to their question is actually much more conservative than they thought it would be. Jesus calls us to a radical fidelity to our spouses. You remain faithful to your spouse no matter what. Jesus calls us to, really, he's calling us to imitate him in his radical faithfulness to us. 
Now later in verse 9, Jesus gives an exception. Jesus says, well, in verses 8 and 9, he says, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Whoever divorces his wife, Jesus says, except for sexual immorality. Now, it's actually not really clear or not entirely clear what the exception is. Uh, Jesus doesn't actually use the word adultery there, uh, but a more general word for sexual immorality. And one pastor, Dr. Boyce, takes it like this. He says, if adultery were used, uh, it would be clearly speaking about sexual immorality in marriage, but the penalty for adultery was death, in which case, of course, divorce becomes unnecessary. And so what is being talked about then would, would be sexual immorality before marriage, in which case, says Dr. Boyce, there would have been deceit in the marriage contract. Jesus would then be saying that although a man may divorce a woman immediately after marriage, if he finds her not to be a virgin, he is not permitted to divorce her for any other reason. Now, interestingly, this exception clause is not found in any other gospel. So then you have to ask the question, well, why does Matthew include it and nobody else? Again, Boyce gives this reason. It's kind of a long quote, but I think it's helpful. He says, Matthew is, the only, is also the only gospel to record the reaction of Joseph when he learned of Mary's pregnancy. Matthew wrote... Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, Joseph and Mary were not married, though they were formally engaged, which was nearly as binding, and Joseph wanted to annul the engagement, which was regarded as a divorce, when he learned that Mary was expecting a child. So if someone read that, Boyce says, followed by Jesus' statement in the 19th chapter that any divorce was wrong, the reader might conclude that Joseph was willing to break the law by what he planned to do. Matthew included the exception to explain what had happened in the case of Jesus' parents, says Boyce. And personally, I think that's actually a pretty good explanation of what Jesus is getting at. Jesus is not saying that anyone can get a divorce if their spouse is unfaithful or, or for any other reason, for that matter. Now, that may be shocking, but three things we should keep in mind. Uh, first, in Jesus' day, adultery was punishable by death. So again, there would be no need to say that adultery was grounds for divorce because if your spouse committed adultery, they would, could be put to death for what they did. Of course, we're in a very different situation than that today. But second, think about the context. In Matthew 18, Jesus said, if someone sins against us, how are we to respond? Well, we looked at uh, last week, we're not to despise them, but to have compassion. We're not, we are to confront them in love and gentleness. And if they refuse to repent, we eventually remove them from the church, but really in the hopes that they will return. And if they repent, we are to respond with total forgiveness. Jesus' trajectory is always toward mercy and reconciliation. A third, think about this. Think about the gospel itself. Now, the Bible's story is a story of our unfaithfulness, Israel's unfaithfulness after God brought her to himself and our continued unfaithfulness as his people. 
Even when God sent Israel away, it was only so that she might come to her senses and return to him. If God has had mercy on our spiritual adultery in that way, should we not show mercy to our fellow servants? Using Jesus' language from the last chapter. Again, the Bible pushes us toward reconciliation and peace and radical fidelity in marriage. Well, that's the second point. It brings us to the third, which is human hard-heartedness. See, the religious leaders of Jesus' day were not satisfied with Jesus' answer. They want an out. And so they say in verse 7, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Jesus responds in verse 8, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. They want to know, if divorce is so wrong, Jesus, why does Moses command it? Notice Jesus' response. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. They ask about Moses commanding divorce, and Jesus talks about Moses allowing divorce. Why? Why the the distinction there? Well, the truth is, you will search the Old Testament in vain to find a general law about divorce. Now, don't get me wrong, divorce is repeatedly seen as a bad thing in the Old Testament. Uh, Priests were not to marry divorced women. Uh, There are a couple of laws against divorce in specific circumstances. But at the same time, divorce is assumed in the Old Testament. I mean, it is assumed that there will be divorced women in Israel that priests are not to marry. Uh, We're told that divorced uh, daughters of priests may eat of certain foods in Leviticus Uh, The vows of divorced women were valid and binding according to numbers. So divorce is assumed. It's put in a bad light, but it's assumed. The one law that people would point to as regulating divorce is found in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. People then and now read the law like this, just summarizing it. When a man finds some indecency in his wife he should write her a certificate of divorce and send her out. But that's not actually what the law says. It's the way we read it, but that's not what it says. The law says something more like this. If a man finds some indecency in his wife, and if he writes her a certificate of divorce, and if she remarries and gets divorced a second time, or her second husband dies, then, here comes the actual law, her first husband may not take her back. See, Moses is describing conditions in which this law obtains. He's, he's not saying that divorce is okay, only that if someone divorces and remarries and divorces again, then they cannot remarry their first spouse. That's the law in Deuteronomy 24. That's why the Pharisees asked Jesus, why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce? And Jesus responds that Moses allows divorce because of your hardness of heart. Moses never commanded divorce. He assumed it. He assumed it that in a fallen world, marriages will break down. But that's not approbation. That's not approval. That's not endorsement. That's simply recognition of the harsh realities of a fallen world. Now, I I want us to think for a minute about Jesus' words about hardness of heart. What is it in the human heart that pushes for divorce? Well, let me mention just two things. 
One, we live for immediate gratification. And if my spouse doesn't turn out to be all that I dreamed of, if she doesn't satisfy me the way I think she should, if, if, if she doesn't make my life happy, if everything isn't a dream or a fairy tale, then I'm out of here. Right? If, if, living, if I'm living for immediate gratification, the moment things get difficult, I look somewhere else. A second reason is that we often avoid conflict in difficult situations. Conflict happens in marriage. If we can't face that and deal with it, we tend to run. And maybe we retreat inside of ourselves. Maybe we, we leave and never look back. It takes real faith to stay in a marriage when it is difficult. It's not easy. A faith is trusting God's promises and knowing that God is going to come through here. It requires faith to obey God in any situation, to know that His revealed will is really what's best for me. It requires faith to believe that God has our best interests in mind. It takes faith to believe that God is big enough to see me through this difficult times in, these, in this relationship. It requires faith to believe that God actually, actually uses conflict for my good, for my growth. And that if I just abandon ship, I'm actually going to miss out on God's best for me in this moment. We must believe God's word, believe his promises, believe that he will come through if we're going to persevere in any difficult circumstance in life. But of course, if we're going to do that, if we are going to believe his word, we have to be careful not to twist it. We often misuse the Bible for our own ends. Uh, the religious people of Jesus' day were, were misusing it. They were taking Moses' acknowledgement of the horrible reality of divorce and taking it as a prescription for divorce on demand. And while Jesus gives us an exception, even there, the point is not to give checkboxes for who can and who cannot divorce. For one thing, there's another exception given later on in the Bible. I mean, Paul says that if you're married to an unbeliever and they want to leave, you should let them leave. So now Jesus' one exception has become two exceptions. But you know what our heart does with those kinds of things? If you're in a difficult marriage, you begin to pour over these exceptions, trying to figure out a way to fit your situation into this exception. You say, well, let's see, if I can only get my spouse brought under church discipline and removed from the church, then I can safely let her leave and, and, and then I'm free to marry or something like that, right? Or we say even, even worse, we say, well, I don't think she's a believer <laughs> or I don't think he's a believer. He's obviously not acting one. So I'm just going to let him leave and not worry about it. Well, are there exceptions? Yes, there are. Um, there are at least these two. Uh, Dr. Boyce mentions a few more at the end of his commentary. Are there situations where it is maybe dangerous or unwise for someone to stay in a marriage where divorce might be the lesser of two evils? Maybe. As a child of divorce, let me tell you, divorce is horrible. So I don't say that lightly. Are there exceptions? Uh, there are at least two according to Scripture, but let me say this. 99% of the time, right, you are not the exception. See, we all want to think that our situation is different. That, that when God said these things, he wasn't talking to my situation, he wasn't talking to me. But your situation isn't different. We all live in the same fallen world. We all have the same sinful hearts. 
And God wants you to pursue reconciliation in every possible relationship. Restoration, peace, fidelity. This is God's goal for your marriage, no matter how hard it is. Remember the love of God in pursuing you in your rebellion. Remember the the moral relational debt that you owed to God. Remember the self-sacrificial love of Jesus, the cost of true forgiveness, and forgive as you have been forgiven. Now, clearly, sometimes it's not always up to you. Uh, Your spouse leaves you, and in our culture, there's often uh, not much that you can do about it, even legally. Or maybe you got a divorce in the past, and your spouse has remarried, or you have remarried. Well, here are some of, again, Dr. Boyce's final words on this passage. He says, It is true that Christians who marry out of God's will and get divorced often remarry frequently to Christians, and that God seems in grace often to sanctify and bless the second marriage. Does this mean that God modifies his standards? No. But it does mean that divorce and remarriage, as bad as they are, are not unforgivable. And that God is always willing to begin again with us wherever we are or whatever we have done. Churches should never be closed to such people. And Christians, above all, should be understanding of others and show mercy. We're not quite at the end of the passage. We've looked at the divine love story and radical fidelity and human hard-heartedness. There's one last thing we want to look at briefly, and that is purposeful singleness. See, the disciples respond to Jesus' teaching in a, maybe a humorous way. They say in verse 10, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. See, what the disciples are saying here is, if there's no way out, it's best not to get married in the first place. Kind of humorous, yet also it's very sad. Jesus responds first in verse 11 by saying, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. Now, Jesus may be talking about his own statements to which the disciples are responding, right? He may be saying, uh, not everyone can receive the fact that marriage is permanent, but only those to whom it is given. If so, what Jesus means is something like this. Marriage is a gift from God. And the ability to persevere in marriage is also a gift from God, a gift to be sought and asked for. But you cannot persevere in marriage in your own strength. There will be difficult times. You need God's Spirit to strengthen you to face those difficult times, to not despise your spouse when you're sinned against, to confront your spouse with gentleness, to forgive them when asked. At the same time, you also need God's Spirit to strengthen you to humble yourself when you sin against your spouse, to enable you to receive a rebuke, to grant you repentance, and to enable you to say those very difficult words, I'm sorry. I was wrong. Please forgive me. But Jesus might be saying something else here. He might mean that not everyone can receive the disciples' words. That is, not everyone can receive the notion that it is better not to marry, but only those to whom it has been given. That is, uh, in, in which case Jesus is saying that singleness, too, is a gift. It must be given to someone. It is a gift of God. This understanding of Jesus' words seems to be supported by the next verse, verse 12, 
which says this, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Now, Jesus is not saying that we should literally make ourselves eunuchs. He is not saying that men ought to castrate themselves for the kingdom. He is saying that there are some who will remain unmarried for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom. Paul says the same things in 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, you can read that later on if, if you like. It says a lot more about marriage in that passage. And Paul also calls marriage and singleness a gift from God. And there's a benefit, benefit from singleness that it allows the undistracted pursuit of Jesus and his kingdom. Now, some people agonize over the question, do I have the gift of singleness? Do I not? How do I know? I don't want to make the wrong decision if I come out you know, with the wrong conclusion. Well, let, let me ease your mind. If you've ever asked yourself that question, do I have the gift of singleness? I can answer that question for you right now. I don't think Jesus or Paul are talking about a spiritual gift of marriage or a spiritual gift of singleness. If you are married, God has given you the gift of marriage because you're married. If you are single, God has given you the gift of singleness because you're single. The gift is the moment that you are in right now. And God may give you a different gift later on, but the moment that God has given you is his gift to you to use for his glory. The point is you're to use this moment, whatever it is, whatever circumstances you find yourself in, you're to use them to glorify God. If you're married, love your spouse, enjoy them to the glory of God, persevere through trouble and arguments and sinning against one another, seek forgiveness, offer forgiveness, all to the glory of our great lover, Jesus. If you're single, use your singleness. You, you have more time and less distractions than married people or married people with children. Use that time to serve the Lord with all your energy and all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. Wherever you are, whether you are married or whether you are single, let us give ourselves first to the Lord and then to one another for his glory. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we thank you for the many gifts that you give us. We thank you for the time that you give us as single people to devote ourselves to you fully, to serve you, to give our, our time and our energy to you. We thank you for the time you give us as married people to love our spouses in a way that reflects your love for us. We pray, Father, that whether we are married or whether we are single, that we would serve you with our whole hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.